Good morning, afternoon, evening, wherever you are in the world right now. Uh, this is Everett Wang of the Raw Entrepreneur, and I'm so blessed that I've got Dr. Josie Berg with me and Dr. Emily Yunker as well, who's also like my one of my favorite people in the world. And to have the two of them together today to yak and yak, and I'm just going to be the fly on the wall to listen to them, um, is a real blessing, and it's like um, it's a chance for me and for you to learn and absorb from these two very, very lovely minds. And um, the, the whole point of this in conversation with um, today is really um, in response to what's been going on in the world where there's so much censorship going on right now and everyone's feeling a bit frustrated. So I am going to try not to edit too much out of this. So you're going to hear a lot of boo-boos in here um, moving forward with the record button on. Um, but yeah, so hi, Dr. Josie and Dr. Emily. Hi, Amrus. What are we going to say? What are we going to talk today about? Well, we had, we had gotten together. I mean, now that we're talking about, we, we started talking about personal development and conscious caregiving. I just wanted to say, con I love the conscious caregiving because I feel like I've, I've been on a little bit of a shamanic journey this past five days myself. I ended up with a, a stomach virus and then that ended up purging me. But then I ended up doing a um, shamans without borders, tending the animals program for earth day. So I've done about like 12 shamanic journeys over the past 48 hours. <laughs> so I'm kind of in that headspace. but we were tuning into um connecting with species around the planet, including our domestic animals and where they're at and what we could do to be more conscious of them and asking them if they needed help, if they had messages for us and developing a relationship that way on the inner. But um, I woke up today after going through this and kind of flushing everything out. And, and this is something for you, Emily. I have been over the past couple of weeks, I've been kind of agitated and felt this inner resistance and agitation. And I've been working on, on reopening, working on reverence and how I'm going to reopen it and where I'm going to take that. And one of the things that's been bothering me, I finally kind of put my finger on it, was the, um, <laughs> I went back to Susan Weed's book, Healing Wise, and she talks about three different traditions of healing. And you have the scientific tradition, which we all have had drummed into our heads now for the past two yeah. years, literally. <laughs> And then, but there are good things about the scientific tradition. I mean, it helps us heal broken bones and it allows like, if you're injured on a battlefield, it will, they will put you back together or a car accident, then you can put bodies back together, but it's very crisis oriented and it's almost battle oriented, right? It's like you're fighting the disease or you're, you know, and you're, you're killing the disease off with antibiotics, anti-life or with chemotherapy, which is actually like chemical warfare or nuclear therapy, which is nuclear radiation. And it's very, it's very young. It's very male. It'll get the job done when you need to get the job done. But then there's 
the heroic tradition. And that's what's been kind of rubbing me the wrong way because of course we all have these like, like comparing ourselves to other people and other people in the profession and what's going on out there. And, and the heroic tradition is like the alternative medicine, but it's still like, I'm the hero and I'm coming to the rescue to save you from like the mean scientific tradition almost, you know, I have the answers and that in and of itself has its own issues. And then there's the like the wise woman tradition, which and that's why I've connected with Emily so much is it's it's the the feminine where the scientific is like the yang, the wise woman is a total yin. So you kind of sink into being and you're looking at more like the terrain theory and supporting the body wherever the body is and nurturing and caring and you know having compassion for the body and bringing the spirit in and the unknown like the unknown void and and those things kind of a, what i was doing with the shamanic journey is bringing that unknown piece in and allowing the great mystery to come in and heal and i was listening yesterday um i don't know if any of you have heard of charles eisenstein He's to, I, I posted, Paris, on, you would love him. You should definitely. Yeah. Check I posted book. a, I, he did an interview with Sayer G from green med info info. And I posted it on my inner Instagram and my Facebook yesterday because green med info info is like the heroic tradition full at work, you know? And then Charles Eisenstein was talking about his wife who does some type of healing work and she calls it resonance. Oh, I want to get this right now. Um, it's not resonance. It's like resonant listening, resonant presencing. So she, she literally holds the field open for that person and whatever that person's patterns are to show up within her healing field. And, but that field also includes the possibilities of miracles coming in and doing like the rewiring and doing the healing. And she's, she's getting like these miracle results. So that's, and it's more like the, like the wise woman herbal way where you're just you're supporting that being wherever that being is not right. demanding that that being goes yes. one way or another, you know? Yeah. And yeah. that's it's like when, saying you are perfect right here, yes. right as you right are now. How yeah. can we nourish you to increase wholeness? Exactly. Exactly. And so, and that, that whole thing came together just so strongly for me. And I realized it, part of it was the very first book of herbal medicine I picked up was Susan Weeds. And then the second book, I think I bought them on the same day was Ted Kapchuk's The Web That Has No Weaver, which was one of the first books written about traditional Chinese medicine for like the lay person. And I, and I was like, wow, like that's like the foundation of pretty much my practice, not knowing that, not making that a conscious decision, but it was so their philosophies and everything just I absorbed into me at a time in my life when I was really open to that. And, you know, that's where I'm, you know, 
it was just fun, it, good to find that foundation going forward. So then when I bring things out, it can come from that place. But yeah, so the wise woman. And we had talked about we National Spay Day. I don't know if we want to talk about this or not, about the whole spay and neuter issue that's coming up. And some of it um, really, and I think part of what hit me the wrong way with it was that her heroic tradition part. And that's a lot of the part that's on in the holistic animal community, online holistic animal community. So people will jump on things and just take it to the nth degree. You know, so people are out there going, oh, I'm so sorry. I got my dog and cat spit and neutered and I don't know what to do. And like, it's like they're taking it on as committing a sin that they did. And that in and of itself, just it, it hurts my heart to a certain extent. But there are a lot of these issues there are there's no right or wrong answer but again we can go back to the place of where you are so your animals already been spayed and neutered what can we do to support them or maybe they haven't been but what can we do to make sure that their life still goes well you know it's a tough thing yeah well i don't even know where to like like where to respond to that one because i feel like there's like a six different entry points to this conversation <laughs> There is. I did. I went back last night to look up um, Karen. I wanted to see what Karen Becker put out on the inside scoop okay. because they were really kind of behind the driving force of bringing yep. this up as an issue. Right. So you open the doors to something and she um, I read what they have posted from the inside scoop. And it was really interesting to read because she didn't say to not go out and spay and neuter your dogs and cats at all and she did and she didn't write and she didn't say that um every single dog and cat that was even early age spayed neutered is going to have a problem or even spayed and neutered around six months is going to have a problem that and she actually even said in there there's a lot of animals that don't have a problem so don't freak out but that people grab a hold of it and they're immediately just like wow <laughs> you know so yeah, i think I mean, it's I mean, I think it's tricky because like, I mean, I see it all the time in every kind of alternative or holistic community that I'm in. And I actually kind of, mm -hmm. I kind of mentally, because of my background with Susan, I kind of mentally separate alternative versus holistic because while there's overlap there, they're not really the same in my book. Um, well, I've, I'm even trying to get away from the term holistic at this point. I, yeah, I, yeah. I'm trying to come up with something else, whether it's traditional healing or whether it's, you know, because even that has, it's like, I feel like. I have like a hard time with traditional too, though. Yeah. Because the word, Tradi like, I, I hear people use traditional, like, oh, well, traditional medicine means, and what they actually mean is, like, most of the people around me are doing this but in our context that means uh, like a tradition system. yeah uh, uh -huh. and so i don't like uh -huh. using traditional because i literally hear people use western scientific technocratic medicine as traditional, traditional. which i guess you could oh, argue wow. it is it is our tradition in the u.s to do these things yeah um, at the present time definitely at but... the moment yeah and then on the <laughs> other hand traditional medicine could mean the tradition of your people of your past which is cool but is highly personal to who do you consider the people of your past to be is exactly. it your first like the place that you are or is it like 
the genetic lineage or is it the family that you were around? Like, what do you mean by that? So I find the word yeah. traditional to be very, very it's hard, right? Yeah. But yeah. I mean, at least holistic, I sort of know what I'm meaning for like, yeah. take everything into account, but obviously that's incredibly vague and you can't literally take every single thing into account. That's not yeah. actually possible. <laughs> so yeah, I have a hard time with that one too. I, I, I still like the word holistic, but I feel about it the way I do natural, that you could argue that anything could oh, be argued yeah. as natural and anything it's natural. could be argued as exactly. holistic. And what does it really mean? Yeah. Yeah. It's, so it's I, I have really a blog, difficult. Uh, not a podcast. I have a blog that I um, called, are you heroic or are you wise? And, um, mm, mm-hmm. and it was really specifically kind of meant to challenge other professionals in mm-hmm. these healing fields to say, no matter how you were trained, because um, most of us are actually kind of trained in a heroic tradition, how are you choosing to show up? for people is really what differentiates are you heroic or are you wise um and I think that most of us aren't really even used to that difference yeah and it's like well because I was just reading her chapter this morning and it was the 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 tradition she described as a way of thinking as like an epistemological framework so you have these three but then the how you act is completely different because you can bring in knowledge from the scientific you can bring in things from the heroic you can bring in things from the wise you could use them in a in a scientific action mode or you could use them in a wise woman tradition mode so hugely i mean i see that with herbalism hardcore oh i really have to be careful how i engage with herbalism because you can find um and i sort of tend to jive with sort of like uh herbs are for everyone to use most of them are safe Mm -hmm. you need to know a little bit but really don't be afraid um use what grows near you in ways that you can do yourself that tends to be my approach which is a very wise one approach um but on the other hand i mean you i mean you and you probably know what neoplasine is you can work with blood root yeah. in ways that are are yeah. really very very heroic and possibly it's like scientific, scientific yeah and then yeah. you can even take that further and say well aspirin is a derivative of a plant and therefore that's western scientific herbalism i mean Mm-hmm. You could, you could say that and you would not really be wrong. Mm-hmm. And you can take the con- individual constituents and tear them apart with HPLC and find out which one has the most active, you know, portion and then parse that yep. out and people do it. That's kind of how all the CBD products work. Um, well, I was going to say CBD scientific way to apply that. Yeah. Marijuana is the perfect example of that, of what they've been doing. And we're watching it in action, you know, going from a plant that grows in ditches that anybody can, you know, you get on the black market, but your average hippie and, you know, you can find it to, you know, all of a sudden they're isolating constituents out of it. But there's, you know, pros and cons and side effects to all of that as well, which they forget. I mean, yes, the more you process it, the more you isolate it, the more likely you are to have any kind of very strong unilateral action. And any kind of strong unilateral action can be a bad match for the individual or in combination with other things. 
yeah yeah yep. and so push it out of balance yeah. and it's not like i'm even opposed to that i mean i mean i worked an er shift last night where where we did some pretty intensive stuff to uh, a dog that came in as a stray and needed some pretty major interventions and and he got them and he's going to be better off for it and he's going to go on to have a good life with a, a good foster and a good rescue group um mm -hmm. so it's not that i'm opposed to doing big medicine when i need to do big medicine but it doesn't mean that that's the way that we need to approach most of what we do or most of the decisions that we make for our pets and ourselves um and really it shouldn't be our that should be i mean i i still am into the uh, the other part of susan's book that same book which is the seven steps you know ideally start yeah. with step zero yeah. and work up to your seventh step Ex ideally exactly don't start on seven and work your way back if you can avoid it <laughs> You know? <laughs> exactly 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 and and it's so much of it depends upon where the individual person is and what you know i mean i i feel like you know even where they are on their spiritual path where they are on their thinking and their belief systems has a huge effect too yeah it's and yeah, that goes I had an to interesting conversation last night because uh, actually it was while we were doing this crazy long procedure and you know you get chatty at um, mm -hmm. midnight when you're supposed to have left hours to go um and um the other doctor i was talking to um is also she's my boss we, she also works mm -hmm. rehab and er and so we both kind of have this like pretty broad ex expanse of stuff to pull from we're not only dealing within our mm -hmm. heads with just kind of high intervention scientific medicine. We also work with a lot of modalities and, and viewpoints and people. Um, and we got talking about this spay neuter issue. And, um, mm. and it's interesting because like, one of the things that she brought up was that so much of this comes down to our perception, which is culturally based on what is so-called responsibility which I thought was a really mm. interesting mm -hmm. um, piece of it. Because like, mm -hmm. are we responsible if we get our pets spayed and neutered so that we don't contribute to overpopulation? Yes, I mm -hmm. would say that that is a definition of responsibility that, that certainly resonates with a lot of us. On the other hand, are we responsible if we are working to actively improve a breed that we love through careful and responsible breeding yes, yes that is also responsible and are we responsible if we choose very carefully and consciously our one companion you know for the next decade and a half and want to make every choice we can that is in their best interest yes we are also responsible when we are doing that and how you define what is a responsible choice there has so much to do with what culture you're in. Well, but it but also, I think it goes back to the individual though. I think it goes beyond the culture. I think culture, we can label something, but it, it depends upon the conscious awareness of that individual, like the conscious caregiving. I, I, would, I would say you know? it's your intention. What yeah. is your intention uh, being, you know, the word responsible, you know there's a cultural input but at the end of the day i think it's also what 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 is your intention for the action that you want to do you know why do you want to spay yeah. you know or why do you want to breed 
and how you're going to breed. So, well, and I think there's there's a context, contextual responsibility. So a con, you know, like every single one of those issues you brought up was in a different context. One was a breeder trying to improve the breed. One was an, a, a lone animal owner who was like, you know, I don't want to have puppies and kittens and I'm going to do the responsible thing and help out and not have any. And then the other was a context of um, having a dog that you're going to be responsible for and make sure they don't get pregnant. But then there's a context of like shelters who are literally overloaded. Yeah. I mean, people yeah. are in a fantasy world if they don't realize that there's like an animal holocaust going on at this very moment in multiple yeah. places around the world. And, and I, you know, after being one of sitting there euthanizing animals, eight hours a day, boom fill me up another syringe. Let's pile them up. Let's put them in the crematory. And I say that from my own personal experience, but that alone, you know, there's a lot of people and you see it with, with irres irresponsible pet owners <laughs> where they're not being responsible for the care of that animal, whether they're spayed or neutered or not. It, it, you know, their general health, are they going to let them run? Are they going to put up that fence and make sure they don't get out? Or there is yep. that male dog going to bust out and go after the nearest female dog in heat. So there's a contextual responsibility there. Yes. You know, hugely, hugely. I mean, and that's, that's the thing is that like, it's like, you have to, you have to figure out where you are within this other context. As much as we want to be entirely within ourselves, we are not entirely within ourselves no. and we shouldn't be, we are not rugged individualists. I mean, I don't, I've never really thought that was a particularly healthy way to live. We live in community with others and not mm -hmm. all of them by choice. And so our, <laughs> the way we choose to live our lives yeah. needs to be at least taking that into account, even if we don't make our decisions based upon what other people think, which is not a way to be a happy person. You still live within a context of other people in the world yeah. and they're gonna impact you. You can't avoid it. <laughs> Yeah. Well, there's, here's a perfect example with this issue. I was, and, and I, I knew there were going to th be things coming up. So I'm at a client's house in Miami and Miami is no longer a cheap place to live. And this is in Miami beach and South beach. And there's this big dog park down there. And she had her dog at the dog park. And here comes this woman up with, um, uh, um, how shall I say it? A bully type breed, a bully breed of dog. <laughs> this is what we're calling them now. <laughs> and she comes in and she's got two intact males and an intact female. And she's so proud because her intact female went into heat today. And she walks into a large urban city dog park with an intact female dog, two intact males, and a whole bunch of dogs running around. God knows what their sexual thing was, you know. So it's gone. <laughs> South Beach used to be filled with gay clubs, and now we've got like the dog park. Dog park. <laughs> People who can't you know? see this video will not see that I'm having like a complete meltdown. You <laughs> talk about this. <laughs> and I'm like, and this is like, oh, my God, no. <laughs> yes, right. So, so this is like the 
biggest, like, you know, the worst case scenario I could come up with. And I heard about it like a few weeks ago. And I'm like, yeah, you know, <laughs> and, and down here we have a lot of the population um, projects their own sex sexual life onto their animals shall we say there's a lot of um men driving around with pickup trucks and they have like testicles hanging off the boat hitch on the back of their pickup trucks and things like that so to have a dog with you know hefty good amount of testicles hanging down is a big thing down here but you know then you start having a bunch of tech females and it could be you know we're talking about again the mix of population and you don't always get to choose who your neighbors are and who you live with and there could be a really nice woman who is from california say and moves to florida and she's got her golden doodle and she's doing everything right for this female golden doodle and she was walking down the street and such and such as big bully breed gets over and jumps on that dog and it's over you know like and that that people don't understand the dog breeding thing either unless you've been around it i lived in a in a small new mexican town in new mexico espanola and you know there was i spayed and neutered eight hours a day for 365 days a, a year there and i don't think i made quite a dent you know in the population but yeah so there's there's a lot of issues <laughs> um yeah i mean for sure it, so like so like this this dog that I was taking care of last night, uh, we're calling him Ghost. He that's not going to be his forever name. That's his foster mm -hmm. name. But his name is Ghost that we call him. He's I don't know exactly how old he is. Like a five year old um, male intact Great Pyrenees who's been wandering oh. in the woods in this area for literally years. Um, at you know, so oh my god, it's actually really common to have Pyrenees as herding dogs around here and guard dogs. Um, mm -hmm. And so some probably intended to leave him intact and have him be a herding or guard dog um, mm -hmm. and, you know, live outside. This is very common around here, but this particular dog just decided that he wasn't defined by someone else's concept Fence. of ownership yeah. um, and just left. And then nobody could catch him because now he's a territorial, uh -huh. fearful, uh, antisocial, intact male dog that weighs over 100 pounds probably yeah. when he's in full body condition he'll probably be 125 pounds um and so oh. he, he's been living oh. in the woods for literally years and every once in a while someone will see him and take a picture and be like hey someone's dog is missing and then someone will chime in and be like yeah that dog has literally been out there for years um wow. and so but at this point, finally, somebody realized that the collar that had at some point been a marker of him belonging to somebody, which you call clearly that ship has sailed, um, is getting embedded into his skin. Oh, and it's bad. I used it's to really see bad. that. And so used, a rescue, hmm. yeah, yeah. And so a rescue basically said, we're going to have to do something about this. And so um, a rescue group has gotten involved and they spent days and days trying to earn this food every day and then they started hiding antibiotics in it and eventually wow. yesterday i don't know why saturday when there was no regular vet open was the day to attempt this but they spiked him his treats with ace promazine and knocked him on his butt and dragged him into the er <laughs> with no warning 
why this is oh, the boy. they decided to go with. I don't know. Yeah. Um, so yesterday I was treating this oh. dog who's been in the woods for years and has a, an embedded collar. He has oh, Lyme or Lickia and um, I am blanking. Um, Babesia. Babesia, there we go. Um, and obviously he had yeah. well over a dozen ticks on him. Who knows how many fleas? I mean, it, and he's super- Did you guys just have to skinny. shave him? He must've been just mad. I, I literally couldn't. It, it took me two hours just to get the collar unembedded. I couldn't, I couldn't keep wow. going at that point. He was under general anesthesia. Wow. Um, and so no, he didn't get shaved. I bathed him and we wow. will try again with the groomer some other time. Yeah. Um, and this is, this is leaving a enormous dog that was not well socialized intact where he just decides to go off on his own. Yeah. This is not abnormal dog behavior. This is very normal intact dog. male behavior. Yes. Um, and so there are, there are real consequences to not making super conscious decisions around this. I would yeah. absolutely 100% argue that if getting neutered young would have kept this dog from roaming, it would have been better for him. Yeah. So yeah, I agree. Yeah, it's it's people don't understand. Again, it's like people don't understand. They don't understand an intact, like in sexually intact, how dogs are, how they behave, how what the health risks are dealing with that. And like you say, that is normal for a male dog. We saw it, I saw it all the time out in New Mexico and they would pack up. They would actually be, we would have packs of dogs out there, just like packs of wolves and they would corner people. We had a little eight-year-old girl killed at a bus stop one morning with a pack of, uh, was a Rottweiler and I think a Chow and another mixed breed they just tore apart, you know? So it's, it's interesting. It's going to bring up a lot of stuff. I think, you know, people, and, and it goes back to education and educating people, but then there's some people, I feel like you can, you could talk to them and talk to them and talk to them. And they still, they're so fixated on their fantasy world <laughs> that they live in. They're not going to hear you, you know, yeah. sure. You run into that too. And, you know, I will, I will always say that you know, I like to say, and there's it's two sides of a coin, but I like to say, I try to make decisions out of love and fear. And um, sometimes that can lead us to being very Pollyanna about things and saying, yeah. I'm not going to take my female dog and put her under general anesthesia. I'm just going to be super careful when she's in heat because I love her and I don't want to put her under general anesthesia. And I've heard this over and over and over again. And then a few years later, she gets a pyometra. And I'm not saying every dog's going to get a pyometra. Yeah. But a life-threatening infection of the uterus that is now an emergency surgery yeah. while the dog is unstable, which is significantly worse than having her spayed when she's healthy and young and not oh, having yeah. a massive infection and threatening her life. And yeah. um, fortunately, most dogs survive pyometra with appropriate emergency intervention, but not all of them do. And I very no. clearly remember someone's emotional support dog who did not survive. And she obviously was highly invested in this dog's well-being. This was her emotional support dog. And that dog did not survive. And it, she didn't put that dog under anesthesia when it was young because she was afraid and because she thought it was better. And it, when we're making decisions from a place of fear, fear. we are yeah. not really making decisions from a place of love. 
And we have to be able to recognize that something, those things are related, but they are different. Yeah, very much so, very much so. I mean, yeah, the pyometras are, and, and that's something I think in our profession, because we haven't had, we haven't had a lot of intact animals and most people don't see them unless they're working like an emergency or you're working as a shelter vet or in an area where you have these issues, but uh, there's all kinds of things that can, <laughs> that can happen inside that abdomen of an intact female. And I know, I mean, I, I spayed enough overweight, middle-aged Rottweilers who'd had multiple litters and <laughs> you're in there. <laughs> it's not a fun surgery to do. It is not a fun surgery to do whatsoever. You know, I just heard, I just saw a post on Facebook where they were talking about some that was saying, well, I, you know, is it my, my, family's giving me a hard time because our clinic ch charges $1,600 for a pyometra surgery. And I was like, I was doing, and, and I won't do a pyometra surgery because they're just too hard to do. And I was like, a pyometra surgery was like common, you know, it was like, okay, I've got this surgery, this spay, this spay, this spay. Oh, there's a pyo. Okay. Here's a, here's a, you know, fat Rottweiler. Here's a pregnant dog. <laughs> here's a hermaphroditic dog. Oh, wow. That we thought it was a male, but now I've got to open up the abdomen and find the ovaries. I mean, I had everything like that. And when you're doing surgery like that, you just, you roll with it, you know? Wow. But yeah, it, you know, I'll, and I'll never forget, like one of the Pio I saw, it was actually an owned animal. It was a small little pit, really sweet dog came in like all wiggly, but hadn't been eating for 24 hours. And I was like, there's, I, the abdomen was just taut. And I was like, I have to open her up. And I, I barely nicked the, the fascia with a scalpel. And there was a fountain of pus. It literally hit, it flew up and like hit the ceiling of, this, of the surgery oh. room. And I'll never forget that. I was just like, get the fluids. We, I mean, I think I took like every fluid bake we had in that hospital and just flush that abdomen out, you know, just flush and flush and flush and flush and flush. The dog survived amazingly. You know, we got her on broad spectrum antibiotics and everything else, but it had, bur it had burst in the abdomen it was nasty so wow. yeah it's it's a it's there's a so, lot there so yeah I mean like I, I will say that I am I work with a population through my rehab and integrative medicine practice that has a lot of resources and they have a lot of education and mm -hmm. they've made some very conscious caregiving choices and they're highly invested in their pets and some of them are super into either show or into mm -hmm. competition of various kinds and they are highly invested in improving their breeds and some of them have these like contracts with their breeders where they have to like wait till the age because mm -hmm. they may be reintroduced into breeding programs um and so some of them in spite of this still actually dangers of leaving your pet in and some of them are just sort of generally left confused about like feeling very uncomfortable about having an intact pet, but feeling like they kind of have to because of all these other things. Um, and so it's interesting where we are 
Yeah, this is not mm -hmm. really a population I was exposed to until I lived in this place doing this particular kind mm -hmm. of medicine. And mm -hmm. I find myself doing a lot of education around what does it mean to have an intact pet? And it's interesting because this is where that cultural part comes in. And this is why me and my boss were talking about it. Yeah. That in parts of Europe, it's really normal to have intact pets because pet is. ownership is not as widespread and they don't have these wild dog packs and stuff like that running around because you have to have a license yes. and you have to have a lot of like resources before you can even own a pet. And so having an intact pet is something they actually are a lot more comfortable about. Um, yeah. And they're kind of better at it as a result. Um, mm -hmm. And here we have this huge pet overpopulation problem and it became the norm of if you are a responsible pet owner, you were going to spay and neuter. But that also meant that we sort of lost that whole education about how to actually manage an intact pet for long-term yes and then we add on top of that some of this new stuff which may or not really be new but we're newly talking about it again yeah. um about hey there actually are benefits potentially to leaving your dog's hormonal function intact for longer and now we're in this place where we're like we don't know how to handle intact animals we sort of have this like social <laughs> pressure to spay and neuter Oh, but now it might actually be beneficial to keep your pet intact, but we don't actually know how to do that. So we're just going to be yes. really irresponsible about it and take our intact pets to the dog park. Dog park. <laughs> it's like this big soup. It's like this big soup, you know, and then I was I was reading a, actually about and, and this makes a lot of sense about the when you remove all those sex hormones, especially early and the adrenal glands taking over them and then the atypical Cushing's coming up. But, you know, I didn't see when I was in vet school. I graduated in 1998. Cushing's as a disease was so rare that if there was a Cushing dog come into the hospital down below, I remember them coming up. I was in a lab or lecture or something and somebody from the hospital came up and they're like, you guys come down, come down if you get a chance to the hospital because we got a Cushing's dog down here and we know you're studying that and everything else. I mean, I saw it was, and they were sent into the veterinary hospital. Now, I don't know, I can't imagine them not, you know, people say, oh, well, they weren't looking for it. Well, it's really, when you get advanced Cushing's, you got a dog that's pretty, you know, lost all their hair, pot bellied, <laughs> peeing all over the place and eating like a maniac. It's kind of hard to miss. Sway back. Yeah, the sway back and the whole thing. So I can't imagine that, no, the reason we weren't seen is they weren't looking at them. But, and now all of a sudden we get all this atypical Cushing's, which, there are, one of the people behind that is saying that the, the spain and neutering, it's where the adrenal glands will kick in the sex hormones, and then you get an estrogen dominance. So even though you don't have high, high cortisol, which will suppress the cortisol, so it'll start out as like low cortisol. It, it's I, My mind was all wrapped up in this last night, low cortisol with estrogen dominance. But then eventually... Um, and so you have this atypical Cushing's where you get the high sexual hormones, high levels of sexual hormones, and you'll have some symptoms of Cushing. It's like they'll lose their hair. They'll get a top, you know, um, and they'll have some of the increased urination and things like that. Hmm. But, and I've, I've been seeing more atypical Cushing's, but I'm yeah, just I wondering mean, I've if there isn't. I've definitely seen a few here and there, but mm -hmm. I, 
I, yeah, I mean, I guess I don't have a feel for like how it's changed over time and whether it's because we're looking more carefully versus not, or whether it's because we have yeah, better just, testing that's more widely available, good feel for that, honestly. Yeah, it's kind of, it's, it's just interesting because I've been saying for a long time, I'm like, what is causing all the Cushing's cases? But they were spaying, we were spaying and neutering back in the 90s, I think just as heavily yeah. as, as we are now. So it's yeah. just interesting because that comes in and now they're talking about, you know, balancing that whole adrenocortical axis with the sex hormones and the cortisone. And that's yeah. a and big, I, you know, I'm really, I'm really fascinated by the whole concept of the, the sex hormone from various either testicles, ovaries, brain, or adrenal glands. Um, yeah. Bone marrow versus like how do they all interact with each other i think that's fascinating obviously something that we never got into at school um and i'm but mostly yeah. i'm starting to barely barely learn about it from a human health standpoint um it's huge in human I'm health wondering how much of yeah it is but i'm wondering how much are we trying to extrapolate for dogs versus how much are we primarily studying in dogs because it's kind of different uh... And I, I, yeah, uh -huh. I haven't really dived into that, but I do wonder whether we're making some assumptions here that may or may not really apply to dogs because they don't, I mean, yeah, they have, uh, or testicles, um, yeah. but they don't, their life cycles are different. So like dogs, do, a, a so-called wild thing, but like mm -hmm. a coyote or a wolf or a fox, they're only going to come into heat once or twice a year at the most and, and the same with our dogs puppies most of the time yes right and they're going to have puppies yeah. like our cubs or whatever a litter most of those times and which is then going to mean that they're going to not have a cycle for a little while before they have another one again and so and and so really they're probably having about a cycle a year versus and they're having puppies in between which decreases the risks of certain types of cancer because yeah. of the hormones of pregnancy and lactation so which if you huge. take them out of the context and now you say they're going to have a cycle uh -huh. every six months for many years on end without ever mm. having liver where they're That's not having the pregnancy and lactation hormones that counteract they're the estrous cycles then they're not completing the cycle. They're not completing the cycle. I can 100% wow. see how this could wow. potentially set you up for inflammation and chronic hormonal shifts. Um, but I don't know how much wow. we really actually primarily studied it versus extrapolating from humans. I, I admit, I don't, I don't know this. That's a really interesting thing because they're talking about like the ovary sparing space. So then they would be, con they would be, their ovaries would be cycling, but there's no uterus there. And what is that going to do? That's very interesting. We have no idea. That's a whole another no experiment. We have no idea really, you know, no except following those dogs. And I think it is, you know, talking because I really feel like everything's in cycles and the reproductive cycle, like you say, to not go through the pregnancy and to not go through that, completing that out, I think it really can mess up the system. Huge. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I mean, 
just because we domesticated dogs didn't mean that we fine-tuned their reproductive systems because the reproductive systems were still fine. They're a mess. To, you know, I think dogs, I think dogs have like a, their reproductive systems are a total mess. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. They have a lot of problems. Like when people, when people will be like, Oh, I want to breed my dog. And I'm like, you really, really want to do that, you know, or coming in. Are you sure? Doing, hey, are you, are people coming in with artificial insemination because their dog won't take and it's yeah. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. Oh, should I tell my story about Susan and Rose and uh, yes. Um, oh, the cat. Yes. And they're not, and you know okay. what, in, Julia. in, in Karen Becker's thing, they were talking about how cats aren't an issue because they're induced ovulators. So they're not worried about, so yeah, they just, she kind of completely just took cats completely out of the equation because they're induced ovulators. And I was kind of left there going, but, but why? But why? <laughs> but, uh, yeah, but why? Because they're not getting the hormones. So why aren't they getting cancer? And why aren't they having all these effects, you know? Yeah, it made me do it made me do that. <laughs> so tell your story about the cat okay. because we have to All bring right. the cats so, in. So yeah, so this is it, one of them is a cat and one of them is a dog. So that maybe confuses the issue a little bit. Okay. So um one of going back to Susan, one of my mentors is sweet, and when I was doing my um little apprenticeship with her, um, she brought up the topic of spay neuter. Um and I had, I did not bring it up. It had not really specifically been on my like list of things I'd like to ask Susan Weed about because she's not a veterinarian. She's a women's health um, specialist and herbalist. Uh, but she knew that I was going to be a veterinarian. And so she asked me about it. And um, I kind of told her the brief version of my spiel that while I can see that for an individual, there may be some benefits to staying um, intact for longer, that there are also some behavioral concerns. And so there's some other health concerns associated with leaving them intact longer. And from a population standpoint, I just, um, I find that with the particular overpopulation issue that we're having in the U.S. right now, that I, and really for the foreseeable future, I, I still am very strongly supportive of spay and neuter at a fairly young age. And um, she said um, that she'd had a really um, intense conversation with Juliet de Barclay Levy, um, right. who is arguably the um, grandmother of veterinary herbalism. Uh, she wrote a series of books um, called The Complete Herbal for Dogs and Cats, The Complete Herbal for Farm and field, farm. I think. Yeah. And then the complete herbal for children and babies, I think. I'm maybe getting some of the names wrong, but the complete herbal of dogs and cats, I'm sure about because I have that one and I use it all the time. <laughs> yeah. And um, she was a very fiery little um, Italian woman who lived in the Mediterranean and raised her beautiful Afghan hounds and her children on these like islands in the Mediterranean where they grew all their own food and it was beautiful. Um, but also, um, she was a breeder of these Afghan hounds and she talks a lot about them in her books. And, um, I don't know how they got on the topic, but at some point, Susan and Juliet got mm -hmm. on the topic of staying and neutering. And it came out that Juliet was pretty adamantly opposed to neutering 
any of her dogs that she really felt strongly that they needed to be intact, whether they were directly going to be part of her breed line or not, and that she felt it was for the health of the animal and it was unnatural to, to take away their reproductive capacity. Um, and Susan, who was a young, younger, kind of a different generation and, and you know, from Texas and California and New York, um, was very like, oh, no, you need to be neutering your pet, especially if you're not planning on breeding that pet because of the pet overpopulation issue. And, you know, that's part of being a responsible human. And then interesting, looking at, back at it at hindsight, I do also think that Susan also feels pretty strongly about kind of sexuality and being to separate reproduction from sexuality, which I think is another mm. aspect of mm -hmm. sort of being a flower child. Um, that she mm -hmm. absolutely was in the 60s and 70s. And so for her, being able to control your reproductive capacity was a big deal. Um, and so you sort of two <laughs> women who are huge in like natural health and herbalism and very influential to an entire like generations <laughs> of herbalists and women. Um, and they are so on different pages about this, like completely different pages. And Susan was the first person I ever ran across who had her cat have an ovary sparing stay. So she, her cat had a hysterectomy where they removed the uterus and left the ovaries in place. Um, and interestingly, my first thought, of course, was who in the world wants to yeah. live with an intact female cat? I would absolutely lose Screaming in heat, like, yeah. <laughs> Right, right. You and only do that once. Right? Wow. <laughs> but her cat's a farm cat and goes outside. And so actually Josie and I, when we talked about this the first time, our like guess here is that that cat probably actually getting bred, but, and then yeah. the body is basically going into like a false pregnancy without a uterus. And so she gets this long period of time between when she goes into heat, which makes her oh. easier to live with. Yeah, because the tomcats <laughs> are going to pick up. The tomcats oh, yeah. are probably going to pick up that she's in heat from the, or the hormones oh, yeah. are cycling from the ovaries. Absolutely. Oh my god! Wow, so that's anyway, so funny. That, so, wow. Yeah, so we've got like this these beautiful Afghan hounds on this you know teeny tiny Greek <laughs> island that are like running around free, breeding with everything, and then we've got this like ovary sparing spay cat on the small <laughs> farm in new york that's apparently getting bred but not having kittens i mean like <laughs> it's so funny all, it takes all kinds y'all it takes all kinds <laughs> exactly exactly and these are like two of the grandmothers of herbal medicine probably modern day wow yeah it's such a perfect example oh cool Maybe we should end on that. Do you guys want to, you want to keep going or? Uh, let's see. I'm trying to think if there's any like really specific direction I wanted to, to bring up or say. I guess I would, I would sort of end by, by kind of recircling back around to something that we said earlier and saying that um, these are, these are choices that are individual, but that have sort of collective consequences. Um, yeah. And so when we are making our decisions about what is best for our pet, we also then need to be aware of how we need to take care of the others around us. So if we're choosing to have intact pets, we need to understand how to take care of those pets for their own sake, as well as for other 
pets and the safety of people in our communities. And that the default sh really shouldn't be leaving all of our pets intact. That's not a good default. Yeah, um, no, and that, no, no, no. Yeah, and, and that, <laughs> that needs to be a really carefully, consciously, and, and I, yeah, I just want to push back against that a little bit because there's a lot out there right now in the natural pet care community that the default needs to be the leaving pets intact. And I, and there, I and they don't, I think we need to be conscious about that. And, and, and what's driving that is that fear. It's not, it's, it's the fear. And, and that comes, I think, out of that heroic tradition. It's the fear that spay and neutering is going to cause cancer. My dog's going to get cancer. It's going to get this, it's going to get that. And oh my gosh, it's going to die. You know, literally people's minds will head down that rabbit hole, like at, at the drop of a hat and that we've got to back that up, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, and again, even the ovaries sparing surgeries, like we said, we don't know what long-term effects, you know, you do that to a dog when they're young and then 10, 12 years down the road, what's going to be going on in their body. So, you know, do dogs go through menopause? <laughs> yes, they do. Do they? Do they? they do. Yeah, they probably do. Yeah. I've met a few dogs. Yeah, they, they reach an age where they stop cycling and they do have some weird hormonal changes that kind of happen around that time. Um, uh -huh. And I've, yeah, I've definitely met some dogs who've done it. Um, and most of the time they, they go at least basically they have major changes in their social situation. Like it's a lot like real, like menopause people. Uh -huh. it, it can be a strain on them when they're going and going through it. And then once it's over, they seem to be much happier. <laughs> <laughs> I can relate. <laughs> <laughs> when you once you're through it, then it's like it doesn't matter anymore. There's this newfound freedom. <laughs> so interesting. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much, yeah, Emily. Absolutely. Thank you. I'm, I'm glad we finally got to do this again. It's been a while. Thank you for hosting, Amrith. <laughs> yeah. No, most welcome. Um, I mean, coming from, I'm just a pet parent, I do rescue work. So I hear both sides of the story about whether you want to spay or neuter. But I think at the end of the day, um, you know, what are the resources and education knowledge out there for the pet parent to make a conscious choice? Also, it has to apply to their lifestyle. Because some, I mean, like nowadays in, in a very urban situation, like I live in Singapore, so actually sterilization is pretty normal for stray dogs and cats. But you do have people who buy um, purebreds, dogs, mm -hmm. as they call it. And most of them don't think about sterilizing, especially the boys. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, um, very often sometimes, and then accidents happen. That's, mm -hmm. that's, you know, because they didn't realize, oh, like, um, there was this incident where one of my couple of my neighbors they they hang out in this like hard court enclosed area like a urban little impromptu dog park for their dogs to run around, and they actually saw two dogs one dog humping another one, and they mm. were thinking, hmm, do you think, do you think that <laughs> just one time they'll get knocked up? Maybe not, right? <laughs> and then oh my goodness. And then, um, well, the border collie had like, I don't know how many 
you know, and they had to rehome them, some some kept, but, you know, it's it's basically a very, yeah. there's not enough education for pet parents as well. You know, it's, it's really scary that people buy dogs or adopt dogs. It doesn't matter where you buy or adopt, but the fact that you choose to be a pet owner, but you don't read up on not just health, but, you know, what is it like to breed a dog or if you don't want to breed a dog, what's going to happen? Things like that. The social consequences when you're living in an urban environment as well. Uh, things like that, you know. Um, yeah, basic, so. husband, basic husbandry. And, yeah, 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 you know, it it, it, yeah. it just boils down to really like there's so much. It's so easy to get a pet here. You can buy one or adopt one. But most of the time, pet owners don't even know how to take care of them. You know, they think it's like dog, a, a, it's cat, like a stuffed uh, animal, a rabbit or, you know, one of those exotic uh, pocket animals. Those are the ones that I think get the most abused because they're yeah. cramped in little cages. And then, you know, people just can't be bothered to clean them or whatever. And they suffer so much. And it breaks my heart when I, when I, when I see certain creatures like that. And when I go to people's house, like, you know, you, you need to think about the environment and, and, and stuff yeah. like that. But a lot of people don't think that way. You know, they, they don't realize that um, bringing in an animal into your home, it's, you know, it, it's, it's a responsibility. They don't even know what it means to be a responsible pet owner. You know, they don't sure. think it, they don't think it, they think, oh, it's just a life that dies, it dies. You know, I'll just buy another pet for my, for my kid. You know, the hamster died, I get another hamster. The goldfish died, get another goldfish. You know, they, they don't they don't value the life or they don't think why, you know, like why did it die? Was it because you did something, you ignored something, you you know, did you learn from it? Um yeah, so Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Most pe- I, I think a lot of people shouldn't be pet owners sometimes. Um I've often thought that, yeah, that they need to have a license in order to buy a pet or go through. That's why, like, mm-hmm. the rescues here, you go through an adoption process, right, where they they do educate them and check in. But yeah, here... You, you try, but, you know, yeah, I think you never know. are overwhelmed. Rescuers are overwhelmed. Yeah. I yeah. mean, even in Singapore, we try to do, you know, best practices. But frankly, honestly, there's so many rescues and everyone's so burnt out most of the time. They just want to get yeah. the, the dog out so they can bring in a new one to foster and, you know, and uh, fix and then out again, you know. I so, totally know. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's one of those, you know, Henry Ford factory kind of uh, lines, you know, the animals going in and out. And that's yeah. when you get very poor quality pet ownership, I think, sometimes, you know, um, I don't know. But you know, going back to sterilization, I actually think that sometimes humans, we should have a law on that here, but we don't, you know, to sterilize certain people sometimes. I mean, I'm, I'm saying something that's not politically correct, I know, but, so, you know, some people I meet sometimes in my rescue work, um, that certain people I think, that, oh, you really should get sterilized, you know, but hey, that's just me, that's just me. Hey, and it, by the time I left so the shelter I'm here in Singapore, so I'm allowed to say whatever I want. <laughs> by the time I I left the shelter in Española, I was I was taking these these Mexican drug dealers back, wishing that I could throw them in the freezer along with alongside their dog. I mean, literally. 
you know, mm -hmm. you get you get to the point with people, it's like where, you know, like they're taking yeah. up space and taking up taking up oxygen and food. You know? Yeah. I think I, I think you. that's 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 why I like what we're doing, where we are actually, you know, really trying to promote what is conscious caregiving. And it does mean a lot of, you know, contextual you know, looking at an individual case by case, you can't just use a broad brush, you know, to, to yeah. cookie cut an answer. And I think that's where the next level of um, being a, a pet owner or, you know, a mom, a pet mom, whatever you want to call yourself, but really is to be a conscious caregiver for your animals that mm -hmm. will hopefully, you know, make your life plus your animal's life together you know in an integrated household you know um how to have the best um loving home environment for everyone in the long term and that's different case by case home by home and hopefully yeah. that'll spread out to the whole planet you know i mean we look at we look at how we care some people care about small little animals and look at how you know they're the same people that are throwing trash out their car window or mm. you know who cares about what gets dumped in the rivers or you know how we're treating the earth so it goes yes. out on a larger scale too yeah yeah so i i as usual i you know listening to my two favorite brains talking together today um you know like i said it's always a blessing to be a fly on the wall here for me uh because i learned so much and i got such a good laugh on some of the things that you guys talk about and i look forward to the next time i hope you know it won't be too long again because i know dr yeah. emily is such a busy bee i don't know how you do it being a mom a vet uh you know whatever you do and you're studying as well i don't know how how you manage it man but um you know respect respect but i do miss you <laughs> You know, I do miss you. I hope we can have more of these conversations again coming up. Yeah. She's young. She has a lot of energy. All right, you guys. The adaptogens. <laughs> it's all that mushrooms, isn't it? It's all that mushrooms. Exactly. Oh, great. Exactly. <laughs> wow. I'm so thankful and grateful that you took the time to listen to this podcast. It would mean the world to me if you could subscribe, download, rate, review, and share this with others whom you care about that may enjoy it as well. Thank you, and remember to be kind to yourself and others. Have a awesome day, everyone.